at this point, you know, I am not really afraid of who I am. I'm rather actually, I, I wear that as a badge um, mm-hmm. just because, you know, if, if you are aware of yourself and you're able to really, you know, step into who you are, you're able to do a lot more and you're able to manifest a lot more in your life than worrying about what people think about you and also worrying about any misgivings people might have about you based off of what you look like or who you associate with, you know, or, or who you love. And, and so I spent, you know, the first part of my life pretty afraid of, you know, people and their opinions of me. I would always hear the, the same advice over and over, just be yourself, just be yourself. And, you know, that was a lot of people who saw in me a much bigger potential, but they also saw that I was holding myself back. And I was trying to really like hold myself off in fear of being seen and in fear of being judged. And the moment you stop being afraid of that, you can do so much more. You just heard from Chris Golson, who does global marketing strategy at Disney+. Plus. This episode explores everything from media to tech and life in general. Chris talks over how big tech is affecting media, how media influences racial biases, his unique struggles as a black queer man, and finally, his decision to go to Morehouse, a historically black college that boasts alumni like Spike Lee and Martin Luther King Jr. He even drops his favorite Disney movie. Hint, it's the right answer. Hope you guys enjoy this episode and reminder that we are looking for partners on the next iteration podcast. So please message us if you think anyone would be a good fit for a product or sponsorship. You are now listening to the next iteration podcast with your hosts Fuad and Damien. If you like the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. We hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks for having me. It's such a cool podcast that you guys have here. Um, I think it's really awesome. And, and congrats, like you just said, on graduating. I think that's a really Thank awesome you. achievement. I mean, I remember when I graduated college, it was like, I felt so accomplished. And you know, <laughs> then I embarked on my, you know, the beginning of my career. And uh, I still cherish those days, you know, in, in, in undergrad. Um, definitely some special times. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I miss that already. Like just being scrappy, living in a house with like eight other dudes, just <laughs> on his like nasty living conditions, probably. Nasty. <laughs> it was a lot of lived together. So he, he oh, can wow. tell you. Yeah, he can tell you how how nasty your house was. It was not a great house. But <laughs> oh, rent gosh. was 400 bucks a month. So you know we can't complain. <laughs> yeah, there's Literally. there's no time like being in college and and having little responsibilities like that. So Definitely. It it was so important, you know, for you guys to take advantage of that time. I did the same while I was in school. I went to school down in Atlanta. I went to an all black uh, male college uh, Mm -hmm. called Morehouse, little Mm -hmm. known school. Um, You know, the, uh, the likes of Martin Luther King Jr., Samuel L. Jackson, Spike Lee have walked those halls. Um, So it's really, really, it was, it was such a cool opportunity for me to be there at that school and, and, and be able to share in that legacy um, so, uh, I guess, I guess, yeah. we can, you know, jump in. <laughs> yeah. Let's start yeah, from I think there. We, uh, yeah, I think we actually did want to start from there. And this is actually, I, this is a new acronym to me. I didn't even know HBCU was an acronym that existed out there, but that stands for historically black colleges and universities. And yeah, I think, uh, Fouad and I are both very curious one, what made you choose to go to Morehouse, which is an HBCU? And uh, how was your experience there? Like, what did you learn? What was that experience like? Well, so I liken my experience at Morehouse to drinking out of a fire hose. It was just like (laughs) nonstop. I mean, 
the amount of character building and opportunities for leadership uh, engagement and, and development while I was there, the opportunities that I had for internships and, and various programs uh, throughout, you know, business, finance, tech. Um, I think, you know, that was really like such a cool advantage that I had while I was there. And <clears throat> I mean, you know, that's actually how I found my, uh, my uh, an, an, an internship program, actually, when I was in, right after freshman year, I started uh, in the Emma Bowen Foundation, where I was actually paired with another company, um, Comcast. And I had uh, about three internships with them uh, every mm-hmm. summer while I was an undergrad. And that was the beginning of me sort of stepping into like the corporate world and also understanding, you know, entertainment, technology, media, because Comcast really sits really at the intersection of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Morehouse gave me so many opportunities to be able to, you know, jumpstart my career. Honestly, I met so many different types of people and friends. And I mean, if you've never understood or heard about an HBCU before, like Google an HBCU homecoming. And it really <laughs> like, you know, it, that it's the vibe. You have to watch School Days by Spike Lee. It really like sums up the entire experience in, in a beautiful, you know, feature film. And I mean, it, it, it was just the most incredible experience. I cried my eyes out the day I left. It was such a profound, you know, opportunity for me to be around such powerful and, and, and smart, intelligent, driven Black men. And, you know, growing up in predominantly white schools, I didn't have the opportunity to be around people like me, like that, in, in that type of, you know, learning environment and setting and living experience. So it was just, you know, the most collaborative place. So many of my peers now are in various leadership positions. I know someone, you know, a couple of people who are working in the Biden administration right now, um, you know, and, and there's a sister college as well. It's a Spelman College. Um, where, you know, it's obviously a women's college. And we, you know, I have so many friends at this point who, you know, hold leadership positions in, you know, top, you know, Fortune 500 companies. And then also, you know, Rosalind Brewer, the CEO of Walgreens, exactly. So she's a Spelman grad. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just the, the legacy of those schools and institutions just really goes on and on and on. Um, but yeah. So how did that kind of shape and prepare you to go into your career in marketing? Like, did you always know you wanted to do marketing? Was it really Comcast that kind of spiked that interest in you? How did that work? So I was an econ major and I I also minored in Spanish just because I was really good at languages. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I was interested in business, but, you know, as an economics major while I was in school, I was really focused on, you know, the more, you know, sort of wider lens and, and, and sort of sociological foundation of business. Um, So that's really why I, you know, I I went into that major um, and it was really good, just, you know, really like statistics based and and problem solving based um, degree. But, you know, marketing for me really took that social science of economics and how people make decisions based off of their, you know, micro decisions based on, you know, the impacts of their household and their wallets 
And then that also has, you know, long-term and more macro effects on the economy and vice versa. So, you know, I, I looked at marketing as a, a really cool execution of how to be able to build relationships with people and customers and, and being able to tell stories and narratives uh, to be able to start to not manipulate, but to be able to uh, build, like I said, those relationships with people that, you know, are, are really, you know, beyond just the tangible, like something you could sell someone are really, you know, intangible. Is it a feeling? Is it a type of loyalty that you're building with this person? So, you know, that's what I really looked at, looked at marketing as. And it also, you know, opened up a lot of opportunities to do some really cool things. Now, I just kind of building that I'm, I've, I love asking marketing people this because like I always get some really cool answers out of it. But what is one of your favorite marketing case studies that you've seen? You know, something that just you saw it, you're like, oh, this is brilliant. How did somebody come up with this? Um, ooh, that's a good question. So I actually saw it recently. So Nike, you know, which is like the home of sports and mm-hmm. it, it's, you know, synonymous with. Uh, uh, athletic excellence, because you think about, you know, top athletes, Serena Williams, for example, who, you know, are with Nike, and you think about, you know, okay, I'm never going to be at Serena's level, because she's a beast. And, you know, like, I couldn't even imagine being on like a tennis court or like a track field even because she's just an incredible athlete and just Mm -hmm. uh, a profound talent. So they, they recently did a spot um, that celebrated the less than stellar athletes, you know, that I could really relate to the people who <laughs> fumble and who drop stuff in the gym, the people who trip and fall on the track. Like, I thought that that was so ingenious and, and such like a spot on insight because, you know, the majority of the people are not Serena. And majority of people are, are people who struggle and who, you know, they, they want to do better and they want to, you know, get fit and they want to stay fit for some mm-hmm, people, mm-hmm. but it, it, it is not that easy. And it's not that, uh, a lot of times we're not that graceful. So yeah. I just thought that that was a really cool insight and, you know, um, you know, Nike's obviously legendary and the other mm-hmm. reason why I sort of admire that brand is, is just their investment in social justice, uh, in terms of their brand equity, you know, with uh, developing and 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 maintaining a really positive relationship with the communities that they serve, um, so I think that that's also really really important. Um, just to note about that that brand, but yeah, I think you know being able to celebrate you know the everyday hero, I think, is just so important, and and it speaks volumes to. Um, you know, how they can build those, re- those daily relationships with people that um, are, are, are more, more than just, you know, the, your typical aspirational um, showing like a top athlete, for example, it's, it's really just on the everyday level uh, that everyone can connect to. I love that. I, I also saw another one recently. Uh, this was from, I think it was a World Cup, uh, or maybe it was just a random game. I'm not sure, actually, but Puma paid Pele it's like 200k or something um just to before the start of the game just in the middle of the pitch just to tie his shoes so the entire world so it would have been the world cup the entire world was just watching him tie his shoes yeah. for that couple seconds and you know that little spot was worth two hundred thousand dollars, which is ridiculous right but what just to kind of dig into that a bit more i understand this might be a more case-by-case question but like what are the things that underpin great marketing case studies great marketing examples 
Yeah, like I said, I mean, it, it starts with a really like strong insight. And, you know, I, I, I worked at Amazon before I got to Disney Plus and I, you know, I really loved that experience just because they obsess over data. So that for me was just such a, a, a great place for me to really sort of, you know, stretch myself when it comes to my data analytics skills. And honestly, mm -hmm. you know, my, my passion for understanding people and customers and their behaviors and why they're making decisions and, and what their intentions are. I think, you know, that's the best thing that a brand could ever do is just invest itself in consumer data. Um, <clears throat> so that, you know, that's the first thing, um, it, it really just starts there with like those basic, you know, human truths. Like I said about, you know, the Nike example, it's not about the athletes who always excel, but it's about those who try and, and those who struggle in the process. And I think that that's, you know, such an indelible, you know, um, piece of information and, and input into whatever you're building when it comes to building a relationship with someone. And, and that's really the best way to think about it rather than just trying to sell them something. It's like, okay, how do I establish this person's, uh, you know, not just their, their want and need for this specific product, but how do I, you know, engage them with my brand for a lifetime? And so I work for a brand now, Disney, who is able to do that. And, you know, so when I was, um, you know, just a small child, for example, you know, I, my earliest memories are watching The Lion King and Aladdin and The Little Mermaid and all of those like really classic Disney animated the films. The best ones, the golden age, the, yeah. The golden age. And, um, and then to be at a place now that, you know, define my childhood, but also they're, they're redefining the streaming space. Mm -hmm. So, you know, taking that as, you know, a really interesting marketing proposition is, is, is a brand who has had this almost hundred year span in terms of building these really like solid ass content, you know, relationships with people like really mm. steeped in like immense customer loyalty. Like I could always trust that Disney's going to have a, a hit and, you know, to be able to marry that with some of like the most iconic IPs, uh, you know, in today's age, you have Marvel Studios, you have Lucasfilm, you have Pixar yeah. animation. And, um, you know, being able to marry, you know, some of those really like now groundbreaking pieces of content, you know, and, and I hate to use pieces of content because they're really, you know, um, experiences. Yeah, they're really experiences. Art. Exactly. How is Soul, right? Soul is yeah. incredible. Oh, my incredible. God. Incredible incredible exactly and i think it's only a testament to the fact that soul was recognized to that degree in a in a pandemic world where you know you didn't have a theater to go to but people mm -hmm. were right at home being able to experience that magic that pixar disney magic right in the, in the comfort of their home and and it really touched a lot of people in a time that was pretty dark and mm -hmm. you know i think that disney and Pixar have like an incredible ability, like I said, rooted in that, you know, consumer insight and that really just like basic human truths mm -hmm. uh, to be able to connect with people on a, on a metaphysical level um, to be able to really like spark people's experiences. And, 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 you know, I'll, I'll never forget watching soul over Christmas, you know, during, yeah. during the pandemic. Um, Although this, you know, time will be obviously really impactful and, and memorable for a lot of people. I think it's good mm -hmm. to remember, you know, the, the, 
the good moments too in in this time oh quick question what's your favorite disney movie oh man (laughs) i had to put you on the spot you grew up during the golden age too so it's uh it's it must be tough yeah um well you know growing up it was the lion king i think i had an obsession with like the only and the animals (laughs) yeah but then you know as i um i had another one and i actually still love it it was Rogers and Hammerstein's uh, Cinderella with Brandy and Houston. And I mean, that was just so awesome that they were able to bring that back on the service. And it was almost like they were, li- you know, they were listening to their, their consumers on Twitter. Mm-hmm. People, I, I remember it was almost like a weekly Twitter thread about, you know, why Disney Plus should bring the Rogers and Hammerstein's Cinderella to the platform. And they finally did it. And it was just this really cool, you know, uh, full circle moment. And now I'm actually, um, you know, working with a few folks who actually got to put that together. So right before I joined, they, they put that on. Oh, the it's coming yeah. full circle. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, that would definitely be like a, a very close, if not number one, number two. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing to see. I, I love stories like that where everything comes full circle and just, you know, you get to work with some of the idols you had growing up. It's, it's amazing. Um, yeah. So actually, this topic really interests me. Um, so I kind of want to dive deep into it. Um, you've been on sort of, I mean, you worked at Amazon, so you've been on the tech side. What do you think about tech and big tech in particular and their increasing presence in the world of entertainment and media? You know, Netflix is now a huge presence in Hollywood, whereas before they were just a streaming service, you know, the online platform. Uh, Amazon is increasingly influential in the world of Hollywood and music productions with Amazon Originals um, and, and Prime Specials and things like that. And now Disney Plus itself is becoming more like a tech firm. I actually interviewed them um, a couple of years back or a year back. I ended up going with the Twitter offer because it was it a was better fit, but I was super impressed by the tech work they're doing, like really, really amazing work. So yeah, I uh, wanted to hear like, do you think this is an overall good trend, an overall bad trend? What are some of the pitfalls? What are some of the risks? And and how have you been kind of interpreting that that shift in the media landscape? That's a really great question. So, you know, the tech, I'll call it the technical, the, the tech globalization, we'll call it, of the the entertainment industry and and um the evolution of the entertainment industry towards tech. I don't look at it as like negative or positive. I actually just look at it as the future because, you know, I I don't see a world without it now. And I don't see a world without streaming Um, just because, you know, over the past 10 years, it's just become, you know, more important for, you know, content experiences to reach people directly where they are rather than having to go through an intermediary. And so that's, that's the first piece. Like I just see, you know, more of the direct to consumer happening across multiple industries. It's not just tech. Uh, I mean, entertainment, it's, it's going to be almost every industry you see is, is more autonomy coming back to customers, being able to pick and choose what they want. Exactly. So that's, that's inevitable. And, and, and so I think it's just something to stop and say, you know, it's happening. And, you know, where, where do you want to be in terms of the, that, uh, that dispersion that's happening uh, in the economy? Um, the other piece that I'll say is, you know, Netflix um, started as a DVD business. And I don't know if you guys remember, and I, and, <laughs> and, uh, I, I remember, you know, you used to get the DVDs to the house. So they started, they had a, a 
different business model than what they have now. Um, and it's crazy to think that that's where they started. And you almost thought like, okay, this is not going to last. Um, but they really started to invest in their originals business. And that's really where they started to like skyrocket. And, you know, I, and I think the same for Amazon, you know, Amazon didn't start out as this tech giant, you know, Bezos started out, you know, selling textbooks out of, you know, his, his garage basically. And, you know, so it, these very large, you know, tech media entertainment companies, they started with really humble beginnings and they didn't even start really in the tech space at that time, it was, it was more just, okay, you know, how do we solve a more immediate problem about textbooks or, or, you know, getting the DVDs, you know, more convenient for you rather than having to go to Blockbuster. Uh, you know, do you, I don't even know if you guys remember going to the, the, the DVD, the movie stores uh, yeah, to, go, to go rent movies on a Friday night. I actually That's just passed my old apartment building and there used to be a Blockbuster right next to it. And then this is the first time I've been back in like four or five years. And it, it's, it's now like a McDonald's. And I was, I was so confused. I was like, what happened wow. to the Blockbuster? But yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, you, you, you think about they also had humble beginnings and a lot of people wrote them off. Um, but, you know, I will say that being at those tech giants and, and especially in Amazon, which, you know, is able to do a lot in a little bit of time, um, for a, a small amount of money in terms of its, its logistics business and getting packages. And then, you know, the fact that they're in so many different industries at once, I think is a really cool proposition, especially on the content creator side, being able to have, you know, your potential show, you know, reach so many different people around the world in so many different touch points um, in terms of their everyday life. So I, I will say that there is going to be, you know, in the future, more emphasis on that 360 whole consumer opportunity for these, these businesses. And mm -hmm. so that's where I really see like, you know, so for example, and, and, and not to bring it down a level, just to explain it. So for example, if you're watching a show and, you know, we'll, we'll use your, your World Cup experience or, or example, and, you know, you see someone, you know, stop to tie their, their, their cleats. And you're like, okay, I want to buy those cleats now. Obviously, that's like the next step. So in, imagine in-app or in that even viewing experience, there's something that, you know, sort of draws your attention in a, in a graceful and, and not salesy pushing it in your face way. Because <clears throat> I know Instagram is pretty good at that stuff. Um, oh, yeah. But so good. <laughs> you're right. Um, but, you know, to, to be able to go and, and purchase that pair of cleats. So, you know, I think that is really going to be the, the real future of that media tech intersection um, is, is really being able to um, monetize beyond just that subscription, you know, that, that content relationship with the consumer. Awesome. Okay. One more question on this topic before we move off it, because this absolutely fascinates me being in touch. Um, one thing that I've been thinking a lot about as well is sort of like the market interplay that tech has. So tech is, you know, primarily these like large companies like Fang, right? We call them Fang, uh, yeah. you know, the big tech companies. Um, and I know that media isn't exactly the most competition friendly space, you know, companies like Comcast, like 
own a lot of the space and a lot of subsidiaries, you know, roll up into these, you know, pretty much an oligopoly, right? So as yeah. tech kind of gets bigger, one thing I've started noticing is a lot of movies that I want to watch aren't on Netflix anymore. And now like there's Hulu, there's Disney Plus, you know, I wanted to watch The Mandalorian. So my dad had the free trial for a little bit, you know, just to test it out. And it's, and it's like, there's so many different aspects now. It's, it's almost like we need a cable subscription service. And I actually saw a startup that was doing this was really cool where they're trying to fractionalize um, subscriptions. And I don't know if this is legal. So, you know, if, if at Disney Plus is something you guys really care about, my bad, but they're trying to fractionalize um, streaming services. So, you know, you share an account or you share like 10 accounts with 10 friends and then you can all use like each of them, right? So it's almost like going backwards and going back to that cable subscription, right? So what do you think about like the fractionalization of the streaming services? Because I think a huge part of Netflix and the huge draw of it was that, you know, it's a one-stop shop. You go on Netflix, comedy, um, dramas, thrillers, horror, like anything you want is there, right? Whereas now, like a lot of media companies are are drawing back and saying, hey, like we can create our own service, go direct to consumer for us, cut out Netflix as a middleman, you know, provide people with this experience, this Disney first experience, right? And yeah, so how, how, how do you think of that like change? Um, and, and what do you think of that change moving forward? Yeah, I mean, so I actually did... Uh a price comparison with my boyfriend and, and, you know, we looked at, okay, how much he was paying for cable versus how much, you know, I, I, you know, have a Hulu account. I have a Disney plus account and I have a Netflix account. And I think I have like an HBO max account, but that's like free through like my cell phone provider. So that doesn't really count. So I added it up and I was only paying like, like $37 for like those three technically four subscriptions so i mm-hmm. guess you could probably factor in you know a piece of my uh cell phone bill towards the uh the hbo max anyway mm-hmm. so i i still think that that proposition is more compelling and more competitive than a cable bill currently and mm-hmm. so having worked at comcast i have a pretty like good understanding of you know, why those bills get so high. And mm-hmm. it's because they have, you know, really these legacy carriage deals with all of the, the channels and the, and the providers. Mm-hmm. So they have, you know, very like blanket carriage deals with, you know, Fox, Disney, uh, NBC, um, you know, then you have your, you know, B1 tier where you have the CNN, MTV, like all of those mm-hmm. sort of basic c- cable channels. Um, and then you sort of go up and up and up. And, um, and then you, you obviously have then your, your um, premium subscriptions of so the HBOs, the Cinemax, the uh, Showtime and Stars, for example. And, you know, so that model, I think, is a relic. And I think it is, uh, it, it, it's a dinosaur. It's not on the way out as quickly as people thought it would be just because the pandemic, again, you know, people were home for a year and a half. And so they kept their cable subscriptions. But I will say that, you know, as people start to go out and, and the vaccine starts to lessen in terms of its impact, people get vaccinated, et cetera. Um, that trend towards, you know, people dropping cable will continue to 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 decline it will just continue to happen um because just the the value proposition just does not make sense especially when when i turn on the television 
I want to go look for, I like, just like you said, I know I'm going to find something good at Netflix. I know I'm going to find something mm-hmm. good on Disney plus. I know I'm going to find something good potentially on prime video yeah. and, and so on and so forth. So why would I then pay on top of that a cable bill when I may only watch one channel out of my entire subscription? I may just like to watch MSNBC or I just may want to watch, you know, ESPN. But then you have ESPN Plus already. So there's another opportunity where it's like, wait a minute, I don't have to pay a full, you know, 80, 90 plus dollar a month cable subscription. I can only spend the nominal amount for ESPN Plus because that's what I actually just watch all day anyway. So I think, you know, that's going to continue to happen. And, you know, Netflix is, you know, right, you know, raising their prices to be able to start, you know, uh, r- removing the, the, the fracturing and, and the, the account sharing. And, you know, I think that's just based off of the fact that for the past 10 years or so, Netflix um, has had a business model that is not really designed towards uh, sustainability. It, it's designed mm-hmm. to be able to invest in content. And that's what they do. And that's what they do right. really well. So, content you know, content is king. Yeah. Content is king. Exactly. So I think that, you know, as Netflix be- continues to raise their prices and continues to sort of uh, eliminate opportunities for people to share accounts, um, it's, it's mainly for them to correct some, correct their business model a little bit. It, it's a correction uh, to be able to recoup some of the dollars that they know that they're losing to people sharing those accounts. Yeah. Um, just because that investment is so steep in that, that content, For um, sure. they have to be able to get a better return on that. Now, you know, a Disney is a little bit of a different uh, proposition, ca- kind of like an Amazon, but a little bit different. Amazon is a different beast and we can talk about that in a second. Um, but Disney, you know, that is a almost guaranteed lifetime opportunity. Like I said, like when you start it at so young with someone in their life, you know that you could probably be able to strike up another relationship with them as an adult to be able to, you know, sustain that all the way throughout, you know, for, for them to potentially start having kids. And, you know, there's so many different touch points. There's the parks, there's, you know, all of their, their different, you know, travel experiences, cruises, all the merchandise, all of the, the, the films and the shows. And, and so um, plus now with, you know, all the recent acquisitions, you have the 20, 20th century uh content so i mean the most iconic shows ever the simpsons family guy um american dad plus you have uh searchlight films they just won you know all those oscars for nomadland which is really fabulous so disney is really you know uh a very you know uh competent competitor when it comes to like a netflix just because of the sheer breadth of the type of content that they're producing um, and being able to, you know, marry that with, you know, such a, uh, 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 I'll, I'll call it a, a really solid relationship with consumers. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not saying that this is me that does this, but, you know, like with all these different um, media entities kind of being petty, starting their own subscription services and everything. And then for a consumer, it's just so annoying to have to keep track with everything um, and all the different, and, you know, you just set up recurring billing and then, you know, one subscription you don't even use, you end up just keep paying for it. You realize like, oh shit, I'm wasting, you know, like a couple of $20 a month for this. Um, 
and it's pushing people to, and it gets, I'm not saying this is me, but some people are pirating <laughs> or, or uh, you know, streaming movies online on free sites and whatnot. And, you know, they're being deterred from actually putting their investment into any one of these companies because of that. So mm-hmm. I don't know yeah. how that's going to change moving forward. Or even if you have any thoughts on that, because like, if there was one unified, again, like the Netflix, right? The original point we were going back to, if there was a one-stop shop where everything was there, I think you would see way more people being willing to invest in that. Because it's just easy. You get high quality content and you're not having to keep track of all these different uh, payment plans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I do know, you know, so it's it's really interesting just thinking about, you know, why people are driven back to that sort of bundle mentality. And I think the cable Mm -hmm. industry would be surprised at at how... uh, how significant of a hold they actually do have on like consumer behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, but because you know, you always hear about people want to debundle, they want to get out of the bundle. But then, you know, just to hear from, from, from straight from the horse's mouth, you know, <laughs> young, young, you, you know, young, young adults now are, are determined to make their money the more efficient and, exactly. and, and make their dollar go a little bit further. So I appreciate that. And I understand that. And I think, um, you know, the one thing I will say about pirating and, 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 and that, uh, that realm is, uh, the, the type of, uh, uh, madness that that might ensue on your laptop versus, you know, just the simple, just pay the money per every month. And just, you have unlimited access to this stuff. That's where I just like, whenever I want to like watch something new, find something new to watch, or just put something on in the background. Like, I just want to have that ease. And I don't want my computer to have a whole bunch of viruses and whatever bullshit comes with, you know, those websites. So like, you know, to me, that's where the value lies is just like, okay, like, if I'm spending $40 max per month and I have multiple subscriptions to all of the content that I like to watch, Mm -hmm. I'm okay. Mm -hmm. And I do understand, you know, people may not want certain things and and may realize, Oh, I actually pay for this, but I don't actually watch it. So Mm -hmm. get rid of it. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. There's no penalty to that. Whereas, you know, cable is very much like, okay, like you have two more years before you can even jump and and there's going to be fees. They lock you in. That's, that's yeah. the beauty of, of direct to consumer is like, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. Done. Mm-hmm. And that's the beauty of it. It's the choice. And, and I think like that consumer choice and autonomy is going to continue to drive further than, you know, the need for people to want efficiency or convenience of everything being in one place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we've given uh, Netflix a lot of free clout on this episode. Let's do a quick pivot then. Uh, let's <laughs> talk a bit. <laughs> Let's talk a, a bit about your career so far. So um, Fouad had this great question. I'm going to I'm credit to him, I guess. But uh, what have been the unique struggles that you've experienced of being Black and queer in an industry that's historically been used to enforce those stereotypes and biases? Well, so, you know, I have the privilege of walking into these corporations um as like you said you know i have a very unique perspective and at this point you know i am not really afraid of who i am i'm rather actually i I wear that as a badge um Mm -hmm. just because 
you know, if, if you are aware of yourself and you're able to really, you know, step into who you are, you're able to do a lot more and you're able to manifest a lot more in your life than worrying about what people think about you and also worrying about, you know, what they, they, they could potentially, you know, uh, any misgivings people might have about you based off of what you look like or who you associate with, you know, or, or who you love. And, and so I spent, you know, the first part of my life pretty afraid of, you know, people and their opinions of me. And, you know, I, I think I would always hear the, the same advice over and over, just be yourself, just be yourself. And, you know, that was a lot of people who saw in me a much bigger potential, but they also saw that I was holding myself back. And I was trying to really like hold myself off in fear of being seen and in fear of being judged. And, you know, you, once the moment you stop being afraid of that, you can do so much more. There's so much more that, you know, you can put your mind to. And I've been able to do and, and accomplish so many things that I thought I would never be able to do. And it was all, the only thing that was holding me back was me. And it was my fear of just stepping out there and being myself. And so I think, you know, that's the real benefit um, of being just, you know, proud. I'm, I'm black, I'm gay. I have a very unique perspective, like I said, and, and I walk up in, you know, wherever I'm working and I use it, you know, as my perspective and my lens on the world to be able to impact change the way I see it. You know, when George Floyd died last year was, I'm rather, he was killed. I was very, you know, I was energized because I was like, wait a minute, Chris, you're at Amazon. You're in this, you know, incredibly fast growing company. It's huge. Bezos is the richest man on earth. Like there's an opportunity here that, you know, you have to impact people's lives who don't have uh, the access like you do. So Mm -hmm. that was really like the wake up call for me to be like, wait a minute, I have more of a responsibility to help other people versus worrying about myself and, and the fear of, you know, what people might say about me. So, you know, that to me really, you know, sort of sparked a new, uh, motivation, uh, to be able to, um, uh, really just own it. And, 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 um, the best advice, you know, that I, I, I actually got when I was in school back at Morehouse was about, um, helping and, 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 and bringing other people with you. So the, the quote goes, you know, it's not about how much you saved or, 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 or like you made, but it's about how much you sacrificed for others. So mm. to me, like, that's the most important piece of this is that, you know, yes, I might've had a breakthrough and I was able to really sort of step out of my fear and be, be who I am and own mm-hmm. that when I walk into the boardroom boardroom, when I walk into, you know, a set or I, you know, whatever I can be, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, when I was at Amazon, I was, you know, I was always in meetings with, you know, the heads of the studio. I was, you know, always talking with our CMO. Like I was, I was, I had that seat at the table and I still do here at Disney because mm-hmm. of who I am, because of my unique perspective. And, mm-hmm. and I think that is the most important piece for me to be able to help others get there. So I'm now I'm always just trying to figure out how I can put other people on, how I can help other people get to have opportunities like I've had, because mm-hmm. it just, none of it's worth it unless I can bring other people with me and I can enjoy it with people that I appreciate and that I like, and that I know that, you know, I, I'm continuing to extend the grace and the legacy and, 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 and the opportunity. Man, I just love, um, and you, this might have rung a bell uh, with rung a bell with you too, Fuad. But this seems to very closely echo 
uh, Nick Caldwell's story. And like, I love the consistency here because he, um, as well as a black man growing up and uh, breaking into the world of tech, he had a bit of a rocky upbringing, but once he secured his footing there, he was determined to pay it forward and bring others up with him. And he, that's what his work with Dev Color is all about, right? Um, and that's incredible. There's just this like culture or this common mindset that exists with like black entrepreneurs and uh, people who are really excelling in their own domains that are just all about bringing the community up with that. Like, I love to see that. And uh, do you see like there's there's a positive trend now moving forward or do you still see that there are these relics of, you know, time past? Yeah, that's a great, I mean, that's a great point and a great question, but um, I see both. I see, you know, uh, a world, especially in the United States, a country that is deeply invested and intertwined with the caste system. If you haven't read Isabel Wilkerson's book, Caste, uh, The Origins of Our, of Our Discontents, highly recommend. Um, it, this country and, and honestly, you know, the, the quote unquote Western world um, really is, is, is deeply, you know, ingrained in a system that is designed to oppress and subjugate black folks. And, and, and I say specifically in the United States. However, I do think that enough people are awake to the fact that this is, has been ongoing for 400 plus years in this country and is not rooted in the truth. It's, it, it's all based off of a, you know, uh, a lie <laughs> that you know, there exists a superior group of people um, or, you know, you know, the fact that if there isn't a superior group of people, there has to be an inferior group of people. So, you know, I think at, the, at, at its core and, and at, the, at, at its base, it's, it's really just lies and it's fear. Um, and what I will say is that even though there is a very strong hold that the caste system has on our society, I think that we are at a point where enough people have woken up and have at least said there is a problem and let's fix it. And who do we know <laughs> that has the ability to fix it? Unfortunately, you know, you see in a lot of these situations, it's okay, what black person can I put on to help fix this problem? But what they really don't understand is that the problem has always just been with people who are not black. It's been with people who are white. And, you know, so I, uh, I don't want to, you know, offend anyone by saying that or, or say anything, you know, that that could potentially be construed as the fact that I, 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 uh, I, I don't know what could be said about that, but I, I, I really do believe that, you know, no person is, is, is bad per se, but I do believe that people are willing to believe lies in order to maintain some type of status quo. And I think that that's rooted in fear a lot of the time. And I do think that, you know, it's, it's time to make a decision and a choice. There's no gray area to me anymore about, about that. It's not like, oh, well, you know, this person, even though they, you know, voted for Donald Trump or, you know, voted for X, Y, and Z, they, they're okay. I, I think people are fine and, and that's fine and that's okay. But I also believe that like, there's, there's, there's no way that you can sort of walk any of that back, in my opinion. 
Mm-hmm. It's getting to the point where, you know, the, the choices are clear and, and the consequences of those choices are also clear. Right. So yeah, you, you really have to live what you, what you preach. Right. And, and, and that's evident in, everything exactly. in, your, in your life. Yeah, no, beautifully said. And, and I really like the point about bringing people up with you. I think that's very, very important. And, and the concept of mentorship, and that's something I've been thinking about a lot, you know, in my own small capacity, as I, you know, come from a school that's like underrepresented in tech and things like that. Right. So uh, really appreciate yeah. that. Um, so I have, I have a, uh, a specific question on the article you shared on LinkedIn recently. So it was on the adultification bias and, and I read a fascinating read. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. Uh, well, we'll say that, you know, I, I derive a lot of benefit from the stuff you post on LinkedIn. So I'm glad that you, you, you still do that. Um, so one question I wanted to ask is how does media play a role in kind of enforcing these biases and how have you seen, um, you know, work in media done to kind of not only increase representation, because I think that's a bare minimum. I think representation is literally just seeing people like you on TV and, and you know, in the Asian community, we, we definitely fight for that. Uh, but that's, I think, a first step, right? And and the second yeah. step is empowerment, right? The second step is fixing these, this media, not just being in the media, right? Uh, and right. I know that you've done some really, really cool work. You shared uh, the Barry Jenkins Underground Railroad. So I, I want to ask you about that experience as well. But let's let's stick with the first one, adultification bias and the role of media. Like, how do you see the role of media in in helping with these biases? Yeah, uh, so I, I think there's a direct correlation. I think, you know, there have been, you know, enough, studies conducted to show that you know people have this bias that believes that black children are more responsible for their actions than their white counterparts it, it manifests in hospitals and, and in healthcare where they believe that black women can endure more pain than their white mm-hmm. counterparts and therefore you have a higher mortality rate amongst black women than you do white women or any other race so you know i think that <clears throat> It is is not even you know a, a concept or a theory. It's it's the truth. It's the facts. Um, the fact that you have you know more black children being tried as adults and going away for longer sentences and and being incarcerated at much higher rates all the way you know from pre K all the way you know all the way through mm-hmm. to, to high school they're tracked into those prisons. It is not a mistake, um, and it's not it's not a theory or a hypothetical. It is real. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the first thing. And I think that, you know, the media has a really incredible responsibility to, to, to stem the change um, uh, of what they have been a part of over the, you know, the really the past 50 years, uh, part of this, you know, ongoing 400 plus battle against the caste system. Um, but I think, like I said, the media really has uh, a really incredible responsibility, not just to show positive imagery of Black, Asian, LGBTQ plus, uh, you know, people in this world, but also, and, and the list goes on. Like, I, I'm honestly, I don't want to, you know, discount or, or 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 not say, you know, a group of people because I think it's important to show intersection of our communities, not just mm-hmm. the fact that we are separated and 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 there are many because mm-hmm. diversity is great. But you have to show that that diversity also comes with inclusion and equity. And so, you know, when you are designing, you know, content and you're designing um, programming uh, for consumers, it's not just about showing, you know, a black family, but it's about, you know, what about this black family is going to be relevant to a lot of different people. And you don't have to be black to understand it or to relate to it. Um, so, I, you know, Black is a great example where, you know, there's 
she um uh tracy ellis ellis ross's character she's a doctor and her husband is you know the head of an ad agency so they're really like uh, prosperous, successful black folks who happen to have this really, you know, quirky family, and they go through a whole bunch of different, you know, ups and downs and learning opportunities with their children. Um, but it relates to a lot of different people. <clears throat> so I think that it's being able to build, you know, those types of programs that not just speak to one group of people, but can speak more broadly, but have that really like niche and nuanced. Uh, insight and perspective into that group of people. So that's where I see, you know, the media industry really having like a really cool, not just opportunity, but responsibility to be able to, to, to continue to, to build out, um, you know, of those entrenched uh, stereotypes out of the media, but also being able to build positive ones. And that's not just about, you know, how do we, you know, correct what has been broken. Let's also just build something that is worth watching and worth, you know, being a part of. Um, so I think, you know, like, a, uh, for example, uh, the Falcon Winter Soldier, if you guys watched that on Disney Plus, it was really awesome because, you know, not, not the, <clears throat> they didn't just have, you know, a, a black Captain America, but they showed the, the, the struggle and how he got there. Um, mm. sorry to spoil for anyone who is still watching. <laughs> um, but, you know, so I, I think that that is something that's really, you know, something to, to really look at is it's not just telling the story, you know, from, okay, we have a black Superman or we have a black uh, Captain America, but it's like, okay, let's be real and talk about the struggle that he went through to get there because that's more relatable. And we mm -hmm. understand that, you know, a lot of black folks can relate to that story and not just black people, because a lot of people go through stuff to get to where they are. And, and so I think that that's really, you know, sort of that, you know, uh, universal truth that, that people are able to relate to. Um, so I think the next question you had was about, um, what was it about? Uh, about your work on Barry Jenkins underground railroad. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, that really was such a that, special, so. yeah. yeah, that was so special. Um, working with Barry, I mean, he is a true artist. Um, if you guys have the opportunity to watch this weekend, the underground railroad on prime video, shouting, shouting that out. Mm -hmm. um, that was really special. Um, I, I don't even want to call it a series. It, it, it's a limited series um, that centers, and it's, it's an adapt of the Colson Whitehead novel. It's a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, book, The Underground Railroad. Um, <clears throat> but I mean, it's just incredible what Barry was able to put on, on the screen um, based off of that book. I think it's a really incredible story about you know this, this young woman who journeys to freedom, but goes through fucking hell to get there. And, um, you know, but there's, there's, there's the, the motivation and, and the, the determination that, you know, really transcends American slavery. It really is, is a story of someone, you know, finding themselves, but at the same time, you know, taking control of their sovereignty and their power. And I think that's really something incredible to watch. And he really did something special on the screen there. Um, so if you have an opportunity to go watch it, please do. He, I, I'm very proud of having just the opportunity to have worked on that, to have mm -hmm. met him, to be able to have worked with him on that. Um, and so early on in my career, I think it was just a, a testament of the fact that I'm in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. So mm -hmm. I, I really just, you know, have lots of love for, for that, for, for that show and for Barry and the whole plan B team and pastel and obviously the Amazon team, just being able to work on that. That was so cool. Great. Love that. So, um, Chris, 
you and I have a job to get back to. So <laughs> yeah. we, we have so many more questions to ask you, but we just have one more that we uh, ask all of our guests. And that last question is, if you could put any one message on a billboard that would reach millions or billions of people, what message would you put on it and why? I would put the word smile. Um, I think the world needs positivity and the world needs good energy, positive vibes. Um, there's a lot that people can be consumed with that is not pleasant. And there's a lot of death and destruction going on in our world right now, not just to COVID, but just a lot of violence and, and pain and, um, so I think people just need to stop and, and, and really collect themselves in, into a place of positivity and, and gratitude. Um, so I would just say, just smile. Amazing. Yeah. Beautiful. These and answers what, what are always a... true to like, as you say, like just super quick, like these answers always like really true to everyone's character. Like the people that whatever answer is delivered, it is something that these, like whoever answered it usually holds close to their heart. So I love that it's a wholesome message coming from you. And, yeah, yeah so very fun. No, I was just gonna say it's very fitting. It's a beautiful way to end this conversation. Like, mm-hmm. I think I think you're so well spoken, Chris, and and I really really appreciate that because uh, I was actually like taking notes just not only on the content you're saying but on the way you speak because I think you use pausing really well. You you, you structure your sentences really effectively, and so it was just an absolute pleasure to have you on in this conversation. And thank you so much. Well, we really appreciate I it. I really appreciate it. No, this yeah. is this has been awesome. You guys are really great continue to do what you're doing. I, I, I love the podcast. I think it's so cool that you guys are so young being able to like really like step out there and, and, and do such cool things. Thank um, you. So keep up the good work. I'm going to continue to follow you guys. Um, so uh, keep me posted. Uh, absolutely. You already got us smiling. Like you're you <laughs> accomplished. <laughs> yeah. What a good way to start yeah. the day. Uh, right. Anyways, right. thank you, Chris. I will end the recording. See you guys. Yeah. Cheers. Bye-bye. If you liked the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. Thank you for listening. Think you got it? Nah, we're on the next iteration.